Hey, just one, one quick update, too. Uh, we shared last weekend and before that that we would be doing what's called uh, an All Saints service, um, and that's where we remember anyone in our spiritual family that has passed away in the last year, or anybody in our spiritual family, anybody you're remembering, we remember them, and their name is read, their picture's on the screen, the candle's lit, um, and we were going to do that at the 9 a.m. traditional gathering, and then y'all are really excited about this, and there's enough between the two gatherings that we're actually going to go ahead and do it at both, so um, we will confirm with you this week, someone in the office or uh, from staff will confirm you that with you this week which gathering you want to come to, but we are even kind of thinking that if you're typically here at like the 1045 and you're bringing some friends, you'd maybe want them to see the usual service that you're attending. If you're at the 9, you want them to see the usual service you're attending. And so that's kind of the plan. Um, so we'll do that at both. So if you have someone that you want us to remember this year, um, do let us know, say by like Tuesday, so that we can get all of our ducks in a row and our details. But we're excited about that. We're in a series right now called Muted. Uh, it's about those ways that our, our friends and families would rather kind of shut us, not shut us down in this like, okay, not in this like vindictive, they're coming to get us and repress us kind of way, but just in this way of like, shh, right? Um, where we make our friends uncomfortable. And so last week we looked at hell, and this week we are looking at hypocrisy. Next week we're taking a break. We were going to preach on hedonism next week, but we're actually going to preach on another H word, heaven. And then uh, we'll do holistic sexuality on the 14th. After that service on the 14th, we will do a lunch for Q&R. So anything around sexuality or hell or um, even today hypocrisy, we would love to talk to you about that. Steph will finish out the series on hedonism uh, at the, on the 21st, right before Thanksgiving, so excited about that. We're going to be in Matthew 23, Matthew chapter 23. Uh, in a 2018 interview with Christianity Today, a former USA gymnastics team member, Rachel Denhollander, uh, was... In, quoted about her relationship with her church, a church that she left when its leaders went to the defense of a group of churches and those leaders that were found to have about 30 years of abuse uh, hidden behind the scenes. And she was in this interview talking about what it cost her to leave that church as a good Southern Baptist. And so she says this, when you support an organization that has been embroiled in a horrific 30-year cover-up of sexual assault, you know what that communicates to the world and what it communicates to other enablers and abusers within your own church. It's very obvious that they are not going to speak out against sexual assault when it's in their own community. So that leaves me with the question, what happens when it's a trusted person at this church? What happens when it's a trusted person in these other evangelical organizations? The extent that one is willing to speak out against their own community is the bright line test for how much they care and how much they understand. We have failed abhorrently as Christians when it comes to that test. We are very happy to use sexual assault as a convenient whipping block when it's outside our community. When the Penn State scandal broke, prominent evangelical leaders were very, very quick to call for accountability, to call for change. 
But when it was within our own community, the immediate response was to vilify the victims or to say things that at times were blatantly and demonstratively untrue about the organization and the leader of the organization. There was a complete refusal to engage with the evidence. It did not even matter. All of this is a an issue near, to dear, near and dear to Rachel Denhollander's heart because Rachel Denhollander was the first woman from Team USA Gymnastics to accuse, accuse Team Doctor Larry Nasser of abuse, abusing the team members. He's now in what is essentially a life sentence for over 165 counts of sexual assault. Rachel Denhollander was the first. She's since uh, she's a Southern Baptist. She has since become an advocate for uh, as a as an attorney. Uh, for victims of sexual abuse within the church and without. Hers is a voice that is of growing importance in a conversation about abuse within the church, abuse sexually or even just abuse of power, abuse from leaders that some authors call narcissistic, that are power-obsessed in ways that they don't necessarily know about. Chuck DeGroote is a counselor and a pastor who works with victims of narcissistic abusive pastors, and he writes in his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, that being wounded by a narcissistic pastor is a particularly painful trauma. Clergy hold a uniquely powerful role in our lives, and an experience of abuse in whatever form from a pastor or priest or ecclesial authority is a, pro- is a profound violation. Some will avoid acknowledging this trauma for months or years out of deference to spiritual Hang on. Check, check. Check, check. Take steps. Dr. Groh, in his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, says, being wounded by a narcissistic pastor is a particularly painful trauma. Clergy hold a uniquely powerful role in our lives, and an experience of abuse in whatever form from a pastor or priest or ecclesial authority is a profound violation. Some will avoid acknowledging this trauma for months or years out of deference to a spiritual authority, second-guessing their own experience all the while. Others may acknowledge it, but stew with rage and avoid the work of healing. Uh, Rachel Denhollander and Chuck DeGroat join a longtime advocate of victims' rights, a Christian counselor named Diane Langberg, who's now turned her attention away from, or to broadened it from just sexual abuse within the church to abuse of power within the church. And she says this, true purity has been counterfeited by false sanctity. We can know, sing, repeat, and teach the word of God, yet its true harvest may be absent in our lives, our homes, and our world. We must never assume that someone who is gifted verbally and has theological knowledge is spiritually mature. Sometimes that leader is a narcissist working the system and the people in it to feed themselves. Uh, Langberg is interviewed in the hit podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which talks about the meteoric rise of an evangelical pastor, Mark Driscoll, uh, in the early 2000s and his colossal collapse uh, in the early uh, teens. Uh, And that podcast explores not only the hypocritical institutions that empower leaders like Driscoll, but also uh, our need, our, your and my interest and need and desire for leaders like that. 
Why is it that we like leaders of power in the church when Jesus emptied himself of his power? Why is it that we like leaders of celebrity when Jesus was mocked and despised? These are some of the questions that podcast asks. Langberg diagnoses our interest in leaders of charisma, but no character this way. We forget that anything done in the name of God that does not bear his character through and through is not of him at all. In our forgetting, we are more loyal to the words of humans than to the commandments of God. Listen, too many of us, too many of you have been wounded by, in some cases unintentional and in some cases intentional, narcissistic, power-hungry leaders. Too many of our friends and neighbors have been wounded in accountability systems that did not exercise accountability. And so this is why they want us to be muted, because of the hypocrisy of the church as an institution, the way that it has empowered bullies and and harm. But of course, hypocrisy isn't just institutional, it's also personal. We know way too many people, you and I know way too many people, who claim to be Christians, but their behavior is just awful, right? I worked at Panera Bread um, when I was in high school, and the, the least favorite shift to work was Sunday afternoons because the best-dressed people would treat you the worst. Um, Zach Byler will often text me from Panera, Panera Bread, fresh bread, Christian hypocrisy, evidently, is what we can get there. Um, and overpriced salads that leave you hungry 45 minutes later. Um, can I get an amen on that? You know what I'm saying? That was $20. See you in a half hour. And uh, Zach will text me from from Panera where he will overhear like on the other side of the restaurant or the booth behind him, Christians like complaining about other people in their church and their pastor and the leaders and the color of the carpet. And I I often have to in text messages like hold him back from like climbing over the booth and being like, excuse me. Um, There's this interesting, let's get political for a minute, but there's this interesting phenomenon where Christians want to have a religious exemption from getting a vaccine, but also want a fake vaccine card. I'm just naming that as, as, as hypocritical, right? Because you can have that conviction, just have that conviction, right? And that's, that's the core of what this is. It, it, it's hypocrisy is what happens when our words and our actions don't line up, when our values and how we live is there's some slippage there. And that is one of the biggest stumbling blocks that our friends and families and neighbors have. It's one of the biggest stumbling blocks you had in coming to Jesus, knowing Christians that were jerks, Right? Brennan Manning hits on this. Brennan Manning says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Brennan Manning uh, was a Catholic priest who left the priesthood so he could marry a woman who divorced him because of his lifelong battle with alcoholism. He's been in rehab a number of times. So just to point out that he's not being a hypocrite, right? Uh, He knows what he's talking about. But that's what our world finds unbelievable, and the data backs this up. In 2007, uh, Barna released the study UnChristian that said 85% of young non-Christian outsiders view Christians and Christian institutions as hypocritical. 85%. That was 14 years ago. Let me tell you what, the numbers aren't getting better. So what are we supposed to do about this? Personal and institutional hypocrisy is run rampant. What do we do about this? The good news is that it is not a new problem, which I think actually sounds like bad news, <laughs> right? The good news is that we've been like this for 2,000 years and longer, 
right? And so if it's an ancient problem, the good news is that there's some ancient wisdom. So I want us to look at the words of Jesus to help us more congruently reflect the character of Jesus. So if that, you got your Bible, let's look at Matthew 23. This is, this is good. This is good. If you think Jesus is just a pushover, you wait. Ready? <laughs> then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with an unbearable religious demand and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Verse 5, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they weigh extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels. These were symbols in Jesus' day of Judaism of your righteousness. They love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. They love to be called rabbi. This is Jesus offering a scathing rebuke to the religious leaders of his day. In fact, almost all of chapter 23, except like two or three verses, is a long sermon about the hypocrisy within the religious leaders of Jesus' day among the people of God. Uh, verse 20, I love some of the things he has to say in this chapter. Let me just give you a sampling platter. Uh, Matthew 23, 13. What sorrow awaits you, religious, uh, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you won't let others in either. Mic drop. Okay, verse 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should tithe, yeah, but do not neglect the more important things. Jesus is talking to these people who, it, it, your translation mates might say, you tithe 10% of mint, dill, and cumin, okay? So they're taking their herbs, and they're fastidiously and exactingly tithing the exact amount that they're supposed to give, no more, no less. This is an herb. Okay, so is it by the stalk? Is it by the leaf? Is it by the gram? They're so obsessed with arguing about how to do this that he says they've forgotten the more important, some translations say, the weightier matters of the law, love, righteousness, justice, and faithfulness. But I, I, the, the sickest burn, as the kids say. I'm not a kid, but it's just what I hear them say. Um, the sickest burn is in verses 27 and 28. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, Beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Yikes. There they would come on Sunday mornings from their churches and their dress pants, and their khakis, and their blouses. With the sourest, ugliest look on their faces and the rudest tone in their voices as I plated their hunger salad in front of them. I, if, if we were to offer a definition of what Jesus is saying 
a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is fundamentally somebody whose insides do not match their outsides. This word hypocrite that Jesus is using, it means someone who is play-acting. It's this Greek word uh, from this cultural moment of Jesus's. Uh, it means an interpreter from underneath. In first century theater, you knew what character a person was playing by the mask they wore. And so the actor would interpret that role from underneath the mask. They're a play acting, right? They're, pre they're presenting in one way, but being another. And so that's what Jesus is borrowing this word. It's about being a mask. And by the way, that's why we're preaching on hypocrisy on Halloween, right? Masks, right? There it is. Happy Reformation Day, everybody. And uh, one scholar, uh, as I was researching this week, one scholar, I. Howard Marshall, a journal article that he wrote kept coming up. And I couldn't get my hands on in anything of the databases that I have. So I was like, who do I know that goes to Bible college? Holden. Holden goes to Bible college. So I text him. I say, Holden, can you get this article on hypocrisy out of the library, like a PDF, and send it to me? And he, he pointed out to me that it was a little hypocritical to be doing that, <laughs> right? Um, but I read it, and this is what I. Howard Marshall, he looked at every use of the word hypocrisy and hypocritical in the New Testament, and this is his definition. A form of behavior that shows a clash either between a person's professed desires to please God and behavior that is inconsistent with it, or between a person's hidden evil intentions and his or her appearance of piety and virtue. In both cases, it in fact intended to secure a wrong end, which may include gaining human applause rather than giving glory to God. In some but not all cases, the wrong may be achieved by pretense or deception. Now here is the problem, my friends. By that definition, by our definition, your insides don't match your outsides, by that definition, uh, you and I are all hypocrites. That's, that's the problem. Because at, uh, fundamentally, what we are doing is we are practicing a way that we cannot fully attain perfectly all the time, right? We, 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 we value certain things and act a different way. We say certain things and we act a different way. Even if that could even be as simple as, hey, Caitlin, I'll, I'll, we'll be over your house tonight at six and then we blow them off. It could be as real as, hey, I thought we believe and say these things about who Jesus is and that should inform our behavior, but they're treating me really badly, right? Like, and we've had these moments. And it's, the, by the way, that gap between like our words and our actions or our values and our action, that slippage, that's where people get hurt, right? It's in that, that crack there, that slippage. And so I had a section in the sermon, I deleted it, I'm bringing it back. It, to me, it's key that we have to acknowledge our own hypocrisy without excusing it, right? And I think the way that we do that is, I don't know if you know this, but there's like what's called, scientists have like a tolerable level of radiation that you're allowed to experience without like, you know, growing a third arm and dying of radiation poisoning, right? So there's like a level of accept, there's a, it's called an acceptable dose, right? Like, so what I'm saying this morning is how do, what we want to figure out is how do we live in an acceptable level of hypocrisy? Because it's inescapable that we will, right? Without giving the people around us a toxic dosage, right? Because we've been hurt by toxically hypocritical people above the suggested dose, right? We want to live like at or below that level of like acceptable amount of hypocrisy that comes with walking by grace. How do we do that? How do we do that? Hypocrisy, if hypocrisy is what doesn't, what matches when our insides and our outsides don't match, 
then we want to begin a journey where our insides and our outsides do begin to match. And I would call that congruence. Congruence. The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection, because again, we can't attain to that. Right? Um, the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. I think hypocrisy is a growing trajectory of congruence in my life and your life, where our insides and outsides are coming to match more and more. Uh, Eugene Peterson, love this, he talked about congruency a lot. He says, the Christian life is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means, congruence between what we do and the way we do it, Congruence between what is written in Scripture and our living out what is written. Congruence between a ship and its prow. Congruence between preaching and living. Congruence between the sermon and what is lived in both preacher and congregation. The congruence of the Word made flesh in Jesus with what is lived in our flesh. We're seeking after congruence. And I love that image of a prow and its ship because whatever the prow is, the, the, the prow is the front of the boat, if you're not a, a nautical person. Wherever the prow is pointing is where the boat will go, right? So there's got to be some congruence between where we're pointing and where we're going. We need to learn to develop more congruence, and developing congruence comes from a careful examination and remembering of the very nature of the way that God has brought us to himself. So look with me, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In basically every sermon of this series, in approximately 50% of the sermons I preach, we could easily make a whole series out of that one sermon. Sorry, not sorry. That's the case with this one. Um, and with hell last week. And so, kind of covering a lot of ground. But Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Oh, gee, thanks, Paul. Right? You weren't all that impressive. Didn't have a lot going for you. Instead, why did God do that? He chose the things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world. Again, geez, thanks, Paul. Things counted as nothing at all, then used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. See, the Corinthian church, they'd gotten all, you know, too big for their britches is what we say, isn't it? They'd forgotten where they'd come from. And so Paul's trying to say to them, hey, like, do y'all remember that, like, you weren't all that impressive to begin with? Because now the Corinthians, like, they're leaving church on Sunday, like, don't worry, Jesus. We got it, right? I look good. I'm doing it right. I am impressive. And Paul's like, actually, not really. And even if you were wealthy, it's interesting, even if you were powerful, like in the eyes of society, he says, he just lumps you in with the rest of them, says, he chooses the foolish to shame the wise. And so he calls them back to the very essence of the gospel, which is God has united you, this is verse 30, 
God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Paul's like, I think you guys have kind of forgotten who the subject of the verbs is. Right? Kind of what you've done is what you've done has been like through your actions and your church attendance and doing the righteous things and making the coffee and going to bless group, you're feeling like, I'm just doing a pretty good job over here. Right? And Paul's like, buddy, no, no, no. He says, you got to remember that you're the object of these verbs. You're not the subject, right? All of this story, it's not because these good things you do. I had a friend of mine that served a church that would award its members a pin for their, their, their years of membership at like regular iteration, 1, 5, 10, 15, 25, all this kind of stuff. And he said to them, you guys know that like you can't wear the pin in heaven. And you're laughing, but guys, like, people were like, I think they had to think about it for a minute. Because we let, like, our religious accomplishments lull us into this place of, like, yeah, I'm kind of earning this a little bit. Like, I'm making myself impressive. But look at how Paul kind of really nails them down in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. I love this. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive. By the way, it doesn't mean like female prostitutes are off the hook. That's just what he's saying right here, okay? Verse 10, or are thieves or are greedy people or practice homosexuality or drunkards or abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And you're sitting here thinking, well, I've not done any of those things lately. Like, all right, cool beans. I've not been a male prostitute this week, so... Verse 11, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul invites the church into congruence into having their insides match their outside, and cultivating congruence comes from remembering, and such were some of you. We don't walk out of this building on Sunday mornings, or ought not to walk out, on the, out of Sunday mornings with a higher opinion of ourselves, but a graciously lower opinion of ourselves. Oh, that's right, and such were some of you. And apart from the cleansing of Jesus and the washing of Jesus and being made right with him, and you notice those are passive verbs. We receive the action. We don't bring the action about on ourselves. It means that we can't boast in the good things that we do. It means that we, it means that like we don't earn extra points for being so religious. Not that there isn't something to be said for faithfulness, so this can get tricky, but at the core of it, what he wants us to remember is, and such were some of you, and, and it's that that helps us cultivate congruence. It helps us cultivate an inside that matches our outside. And I'm intentionally using that word cultivation because to me, it is not like congruence is not a level to which we attain and then stay at. It's an ever deeper journey. It's an ever deeper journey of making our insides match our outsides. It's an ever deeper practice. So how do we get there? Like how do we make 
our church? How do we make our lives a place that we can cultivate congruence? How do we, I don't know if we can ever fully kill hypocrisy, but how can we learn to live at that level or below that level of threshold? I love what Eugene Peterson says about the church. Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are, in other words, not a museum of human excellence, right, or moral upstandingness. They are rather to be places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. Here's what business I'm in, friends. I'm your pastor. I am in the business of human misbehavior, right? That's what I do. I'm not in the, I'm not in the business of, of excellence and, like, adorning your excellence with, like, religious trappings. We are in the business together of human misbehavior. This is why we come, to address our misbehavior. And how do we address it? Out in the open, faced, and dealt with. By the way, out in the open, faced, and dealt with does not mean I talk to everybody about the problem except the problem, right? (laughs) We love that. We love our triangles, right? And I'm going to talk to this person about this thing, and they can do it for me. We cultivate congruence by creating a community where human misbehavior is brought out into the open and dealt with, which, by the way, is not what sin wants. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that um, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. I mean, if you think about that through the lens of institutional hypocrisy, that's what happened right? A leader isolated himself or herself from the community. The sin grew more powerful over them, and it just became like exponentially more disastrous. But y'all come to me on a one-on-one level and confess sin all the time, right? And, and the first thing I notice about someone that has been struggling with sin in secret is just how profoundly lonely they are, Right? because sin has managed to get a person by himself. So here's, here's my chart of what we're gonna do. You ready for a chart? Whose love language is charts? Who's, there they are, okay. So we contend against hypocrisy by cultivating institutional accountability and personal humility. Okay, all right. Through practices of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Ooh, okay. From which springs congruence. from which springs congruence. So let's talk about that personal side for a minute. I think the way that we contend against hypocrisy and cultivate congruence is through personal humility. I hate talking about humility. Um, Because if you get it right, no one's allowed to know about it. Right? Humility is, is literally what it means to remember, and such were some of you, right? Humility is why Paul says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. And I think that's key. I had a lot of people, <clears throat> pride, pride is something that I do contend against. Um, and in ways that I'm aware of, in ways that I'm not. And the people that were aware of that around me in my younger years just used to kind of always tell me to be more humble, which I don't know how to do that. It always felt to me like, I don't know, change 
your hair color. I, I, you know what I mean? Like I, I didn't know what I was doing wrong, so I couldn't figure out how to do it right. I was helped by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Okay? But I think it's easier to think of yourself less if you're thinking about God more. Right? It's kind of like, um, Art always says this to me, said this to me like two years ago, and it's really stuck with me. When he was a lifeguard in high school, they, you don't yell, don't run, you yell, walk. Right? So, I don't want to yell, don't run. I want to yell, walk. I want to say, like, think less of yourself by thinking more of who God is, right? allowing him to capture more of your imagination, which is why worship and scripture and these things are so important. Um, Paul is quoting from Jeremiah. If you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Jeremiah 9, don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. Does this sound familiar? I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they know tr- they truly know me. I love that, that modifier. They, they truly know me. Not they know about me. They truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. I think it's by boasting in the Lord. It's by placing more of our identity in who he is, and, and, and confession and repentance are a key part of that. And I'll explain that in a minute. But the other piece here is in developing institutional accountability. I'm not sure I love, in fact, I'm pretty sure. I used to really like the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Now I don't anymore. I don't love that there is now a cottage industry of celebrating, retelling the stories of failure. I, I, uh, my friend calls it, a friend of mine calls it failure porn, right? Like we love to kind of watch these stories. Like we, it, it evokes, I think, something unrighteous in, in us um, to listen to that. I, I, it wasn't the case for me early on, you know, let everyone be according to their conscience. I'm not saying you're in sin if you're listening to this podcast, but in the early part, I was understanding some things. In the later part, I was just getting hyped up on the emotions and enjoying that. It was not good for me. Um, but here's, here's the other problem. Um, I, think, I, think, I think that what we've created in the church is... As these, as these stories of, like, failure go on, what we're not owning in the story is the people that wanted it that way, right? And what we're not owning entirely is our contribution to wanting our church and our leaders to appear a certain way, such that when they fail or make mistakes, um, we're, like, flabbergasted, but we're not flabbergasted. We just like to pretend we're flabbergasted because we know that they're messed up, but we've kind of put them in the position that they're not allowed to say that they're messed up, and so when they mess up, then we all act shocked and then kick them out, and then we can all move on. And by that, I mean uh, my, Paul McConaughey, who led Naturally Supernatural, consulted with a church in Cincinnati that if you confessed sin, you were fired, Period. You're a pastor on staff, you're on staff there, you confess sin, you're, you confess it, you're fired. If you're caught, you're super fired, I don't know. But how does that not, here's the thing, that creates more hypocrisy, right? So what we're doing is this image management of our church to craft this image that like our leaders are healthy and, and perfect and not doing any of these things. And then if they do confess sin, we try to like cover it up or hide it, why? Because it messes with the image. And I, I, I think I actually have a lot of compassion for the leaders that we're telling stories about because 
I don't know if they were waking up every morning to say, I can't wait to harm people today. You know, I think they were kind of like trying to do the best they could in a complex network of hard decisions and relationships and moving forward. And so I think there's some interesting things there, but I think we have to like, it, institutional accountability has to begin with, it's okay not to be okay. Institutional accountability has to be this world where uh, it, it, it's, it's not, don't have any sin, it's what sin do you have and are we addressing it in healthy ways? That, if you want to know, by the way, this is important. If you ever come to me one-on-one -on -one and say, this is a sin that I'm struggling with, my response, and our response as a church needs to be celebrating that, not celebrating the sin, but like celebrating the coming out to say what it is. And then the question isn't like, how do we manage this behavior into eradication? The deeper question is, okay, what are we doing to like deal with that? Like, are we doing inner healing prayer? Are we going to counseling, right? Um, I send a lot of you to therapy because I, it's beyond my thing. I send everybody to Emerge Counseling in Akron. I'm hoping that we're gonna start a punch card system. If I send, if I, don't you feel like we should get like a bulk discount, right? Just saying, right? Um, I, 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 you know, if you go in person, I'm just letting you know, you might see somebody else that you know there. <laughs> there, there went HIPAA, but I, I, I think there's, when somebody comes to me with a confession of sin, my, my response is always, I am so glad you told me. I am so glad to be with you. What does support for me look like as we walk along this road together? And sometimes I don't like the answer to be like therapy because sometimes then it's like, just go over there. Like, go over there and fix it, right? Because we don't want that here, right? Which is why we have a team that's more developed in inner healing so that at least we have some resources to bring about to that. Institutional accountability, the other problem with that is like, let's just own that it's not the silver bullet, right? Because how many of us have been wounded by systems of accountability that did not hold accountable and did not exercise oversight? And so sometimes those systems become a complicit. You know, we struggle to cultivate humility in our own lives. Like, but just because we can't do it perfectly doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Like G.K. Chesterton says, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. <laughs> right? So this is why for me, I, I work to live under submission to our elders and our oversight team. Like I, I work to be in submission to them, right? I don't think I do it perfectly all the time because I just want to run ahead and get it done and move on, right? I, I work to be in submission to other godly leaders around me, right? There is a wall of about 20 people thick stopping me from crazy, right? And um, Stephanie Tennant's like burst in line. She's like, she's got the pads on. She's ready, you know? Um, and, and I think... Uh, so what we have to figure out, though, is how to move to a culture, and I think this is where confession, repentance, and forgiveness comes in, is that when sin is said out loud, it is celebrated that it is said out loud. Not, I don't, the first draft was sin, confession of sin is rewarded. I don't want somebody to be like, I'm struggling with porn. Here's a sucker. Like, that doesn't work, right? <laughs> but we want to celebrate the authenticity of the moment. We want to celebrate the authenticity of the moment, right? And we want to journey alongside one another. We want to confess our sin. We want to confess our sin. This is so key. It's so important to confess our sin out loud. It's so important to confess our sin out loud. Why? Because sin demands to have a man by himself. And I think it's even really important to confess our sin, not only out loud to God, but out loud to another human. 
right? Because James says, confess your sins to one another and then you'll be healed, right? Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so you may be healed. That's why you say, confess his sin, let's pray together, right? Um, let, me, let me give you this kind of end. I didn't do this at the first one. So let me, can I read you a long quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer and then we can be done, is that okay? Because he said it better than me. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. Uh, he says, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted, but God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother or sister, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. I love that because that's what we do in sin. We self-justify, right? I have every reason to be this angry. I have every reason to be this bitter. Just one more time, just one more cheeseburger, just one more piece of Halloween. Can like, you know what I mean? The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God, and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus and his brother or sister. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. Now the, now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. He's no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him, and he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sins and in this very act find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from fellowship, made all his apparent fellowship a sham, the sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with the brethren of Jesus. Y'all, that's, that's congruence. That's congruence. That's what we're shooting for. To cultivate a life where what is, what's on, happening on the inside matches what's happening on the outside, and where it doesn't match, I've told somebody about it. Jesus... Thank you for this. Thank you for living a life that matches of congruence and opening that way for us. Amen. Um, at Regen, we do response time, and the reason we do that is because in this moment, if the Father has spoken something to you, has laid something on your heart, we want to act on that rather than just walk out the door and start thinking about our grocery list and our family party and trick-or-treating tonight. And so I want to invite you in this moment to, to just, we're going to take a moment of silence and think about what is the Father saying to you today? And so maybe that's, there's just a big bright neon sign of an area that there's not congruence and that he's calling you to say that to someone. And so my encouragement there is to, to say to yourself, this is the area, 
and this is the person I'm going to speak to about it, right? Um, and to do that this week. So that's one, that's one not easy step, but that is one simple step that you can take this week. Maybe something about this sermon um, brought up an area where you need to process some forgiveness. Maybe there was some, some things that were brought up, some hurt from your past, a way in which you feel like you um, have been hurt by maybe hypocrisy or things like that, and there's someone that you need to forgive. And so then my encouragement is to, um, to kind of either write down or to yourself, okay, this is the person and I want to process forgiveness. And that's something that Kyle and I or Art and Pam or Harry and Kat, some of the oversight team, we'd be happy to talk with you about how to process that forgiveness if you feel stuck in that unforgiveness. So right now we're going to take a moment, we're going to take some silence, I just want to invite the Father to speak that to you, and, and my encouragement to you would be to have a concrete thing that you're going to do this week, one thing. Father, we confess that it is so difficult to live with congruence. We confess that there are a million ways each week that we can choose to live outside the bounds, to live in a way that is not honoring to you, Jesus. And, and sometimes we do that unknowingly, but Father, even worse, sometimes we do it knowingly. And so um, I just pray, Holy Spirit, for myself, for these brothers and sisters that um, that we would just remember that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance and that father that on the other side of repentance and confession is freedom and forgiveness and healing and father um, we want to be a place of healing we want to be a place of forgiveness we want to be a place of wholeness and so father I pray that you would give us courage this week to speak out loud what is true about how we're living and who we are Father, I pray for those struggling with unforgiveness, that you would um, just show a way out. Like, Father, you have made a way. And so, Father, I pray that they would get help, that they would take steps to, to pursue that forgiveness so that they don't have to stay trapped in that unforgiveness. Father, um, we want to be a people who live transformed lives. And so we just pray um, for the courage to do the thing that you're asking us to do, that we'd accept that invitation, that we'd accept that challenge, and that we would be transformed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.